by you this morning. I just want to give a word of recommendation. I know Tom has used this little booklet, I think twice, maybe three times now, two or three times. Uh, it's called the Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. Um, if I could just give a word of recommendation, if you, because of our studies in the scriptures and our uh, years of fellowshipping the word together, have become tweaked with a desire to develop your understanding of theology, biblical theology, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a better framework than what you find from this, this little booklet. It has certainly stood the test of time. 1689 is when it was written. It has certainly uh, done so. Um, it is uh, Baptistic in its approach. Uh, and Obviously, we're a Baptist church. Um, I will say this, if I may throw this out here, that it is um, not baptistic as is commonly the case today. What I mean by that is it definitely uh, uh, communicates believers' baptism, but it definitely takes a much stronger stand on God's um, attributes than a lot of Baptist churches do. And so you'll find that to be the case in this text. Uh, as Tom has pointed out both times, or all three times he's used it, it is definitely a subordinate text. Uh, it is not inspired text, but as Tom has also said, it carries uh, with it uh, a, a boatload, and that's a technical term, by the way, a boatload of uh, scripture passages for you to reference, to evaluate if what the text of this little pamphlet is saying is true and correct and accurate or not, but it's just a great tool to build off of to, if you want to use the term, to prime the pump to considering further, because if I'm going to use this as an example, we think about, since you, since you talked about God this morning, we think about God, oftentimes as Christians, we talk about God, don't we? We talk about God, we reference God, we mention the name God, oftentimes in our praying, in our communication with one another, uh, whatever, we run across it in the scriptures, the word God quite often, but in our minds, what happens most times is when we see or say or hear the word God, what we think is God, <laughs> right? And it doesn't go much further than that. Does that make sense? It oftentimes doesn't go much further than that. And I guess what, what Tom was trying to get across this morning, and he did appropriately so, is that too often we don't move beyond that generic thinking and recognize the, at the depths of who God really is. If I'm going to use this as an example, I think about Tom, and if I hear Tom's name mentioned, especially if somebody makes sure that they're talking about T-H-O-M, Tom, I know they're talking about him because he's the only T-H-O-M Tom I know. <clears throat> In my mind, I don't just say Tom with an H. I find myself thinking about our conversation. Let's say Charles is talking about Tom, and, he, and I know he's talking about Tom Houghton. In my mind, I'm bringing in something, aren't I? I'm bringing a lot of things that I know about Tom into the conversation I'm having with Charles. Does that make sense? By, I mean, that's the way it works every time. But too often when it comes to something like God, that's not what happens. And the reason why is because oftentimes we don't, realize or understand or comprehend all these other things that God has laid out in the scriptures for us to comprehend. 
You know, when, when Charles talks to me about Tom, I, a couple of things that come to my mind, if I may just say this real quickly. hope I don't uh, divulge any com confidences here, Tom. But uh, one of the things that comes to my mind, I, I, I have to be honest, the first thing that comes to my mind is puns. <laughs> Am I right, Linda? Yeah. <laughs> Can I get a testimony? <laughs> it's one of the first things that comes to my mind, almost immediately, especially if it's coming from Charles. Because with Charles, that's one of the first things I know about Charles, too. Especially when they come together, it's like the perfect storm. Right, Jim? We experience every deacon's meeting. And so if, if I'm talking to Charles and he brings up Tom, that's one of the first places I go. I also drag in, he works at Delaware County Christian Schools. I also, it folds in, he teaches English. And he knows English really well. And he likes sports. And he loves his wife. He likes cats. And we can go on and on. He's from West Virginia. And he went to Marshall. And he liked car racing, but dirt car racing. Wanted to clarify that. Why do I say all that? Because that's, and there's a whole lot more that I know about Tom that can come into the equation as well. We just won't expose those things right now. Yeah, okay, let's not disclose those right now. But when I talk to Charles and he brings up Tom, that happens. Right? Now, I pick and choose which ones as appropriate to the conversation. Like if, if Charles tells me that Tom's going through a real difficult time, I'm not dragging puns into it. Does that make sense? That's kind of excluded because that's not part of the context of the conversation. But all the things that are appropriate to the conversation, like if Charles says, hey, Tom's going through a real difficult time, the first pot, I mean, it's going to happen almost immediately if something wrong with Linda. Does that make sense? Or, or I wonder if everything's going okay at his job. That makes sense, right? At Delaware County Christian Schools. That makes sense, doesn't it? But too often when we hear the word God, it just starts there and ends there. Same with Jesus Christ. Too often it starts there and it ends there. Or at best, if it, if it takes the next step, it'll say our Savior, right? But it doesn't go too far beyond that. And the reason why is because we, we haven't fellowshiped in the truth of who God is. This is a great tool for that. If I just may give a little plug. And these are available still. So, um, but great, great tool to, just to build the framework to develop from and expand your studying in an organized way. Thanks, Tom. So just highly recommended. I, that was not planned, but when Tom used it this morning, I said, you know what, we've, we've got to mention that. I think it's appropriate. <laughs> well, we are in Acts chapter 18. We're wrapping up Acts chapter 18 this morning, Lord willing. It, it, before we pray, let me just say, I think when we read through Acts 18, verses 18 to the end of the chapter through 28, it's very easy to look at the text, and if I may say this, I hope nobody gets offended by this, it's very easy to look at the text and see it as merely a throwaway text. Because when you first read through it, you say, there's not a whole lot here. Yeah, there's a reference to Ephesus, an introduction of another person, but there's really not a whole lot here. But actually there is. And that's what I want to bring out to us, that there's some really important things going on in this text 
So if you, if when Tom read it, you thought there's not a whole lot here, um, please be careful and don't tune out because actually there's something that here that is really, really important and really, really rich that we need to see um, in order to uh, understand where, why this text is even here. So let's have a word of prayer and then we're going to jump into Acts 18. Lord, I pray you'll help us again as we open your text that we will be uh, challenged and encouraged and reminded of your truth and your working among men. You work among men purely and simply by your mercy and grace and for your own good pleasure and that you've chosen to work with us sinful people is beyond our wildest hopes. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us this morning as we see this text uh, and hopefully uh, comprehend what you intended for this text to, to communicate to us, that we will be uh, exhorted and encouraged along in our walk with you and in our pursuit of glorifying you. So help us. In your name I pray. Amen. As I said, it, is, it, it can often look, look like a throwaway text, 18 to 28. It is not. Um, and it's not probably for the things, uh, not for the things that you're thinking it is about, because I think there's something else going on here. Uh, oftentimes in, in Luke's writings, there's some subtleties going on in his writings. There's other purposes than what first uh, meets your eye or hits your brain. And I think this is one of those classic texts that this is the case uh, that we find here. Luke, Luke can be very blunt and bold, and he can also be very subtle at times. And I think it's the subtleties that we find in this text. There's some intriguing things that go on. And what I mean by intriguing is there's some things that, that, that take place in here that you would not expect to take place. There's several of them, actually. Um, so let's, let's take a peek at it. Obviously, starting in verse 18, he stays at, uh, Paul stays at Corinth for quite a while after all the events that are described in, in verses 1 through 17 take place. But then he leaves, that is, he leaves the believers in Corinth, and it says in verse 18 that he sets sail, Paul sets sail for Syria. And what that means basically is this, Paul is returning back to Antioch. And that's what you find out as we work our way closer to the end of the chapter. So this ends what has been called his second missionary journey, this text does, ends what's been called his second missionary journey which shows up in chapter 16, 17, and 18. So he leaves uh, Corinth and he heads to Syria. Interestingly enough, you find out right away in verse 18 the statement, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Now we were introduced to Priscilla and Aquila back in chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. And if you remember, we said last week that Aquila and Priscilla were not believers when Paul first met them. The text, I would argue, is pretty clear that they were not believers. A lot of people think they were already. They were not. But somewhere along verses 1 through 17, Aquila and Priscilla came to faith in Christ, or Priscilla and Aquila, as he puts it here, came to faith in Christ. Both of them, husband and wife, came to faith in Christ. I suspect it was, uh, it could have been before the controversy arose, or it could have been afterwards, it could have been either side, but one side or the other, either while they were staying, while Paul was staying with them, or after he ceased staying with them and moved elsewhere next to the temple, in one of the two occasions or situations, they, uh, came, they both came to faith in Christ, and their faith grew. 
first important thing we see is in verse 18 with Priscilla and Aquila, not only did they come to faith in Christ, that verse 18 makes very clear, but there, and if it didn't make it very clear in verse 18, it makes it very clear later on in this chapter, because they'll show up again. But I would argue even in verse 18, their faith has uh, come to fruition. They've come to faith. And not only that, they have not just come to faith, but they have grown exponentially in their faith. Do you get the sense of that? These are people who have grown dramatically, have most likely, now we're, we're doing a backstory thing, the scriptures are kind of silent about here, but I think it's appropriate to recognize, not only have they grown exponentially, but I would argue they've been ministering with Paul. I think you have to agree that in Corinth, they've been ministering extensively and effectively with Paul. In this verse 18 statement, they stay, that Paul stayed many days longer. He was there for at least a year and a half, and during that, somewhere during that time frame, he comes to faith in, they, they both come to faith in Christ. I would argue they're both ministering dramatically with Paul. Why do I say that? Well, the reason why I say that is remember how Paul responded to John Mark. You remember? He refused to go anywhere with John Mark, and the evidence is because John Mark had not been ministering well at best. Does that make sense? But here, Paul willingly goes with and has them accompany him to, to, uh, Assyria, to, I'm sorry, towards, uh, to Syria. Or towards uh, Assyria. I keep saying Assyria. Syria. And so I would argue that that would be because Paul found them, what do you think? Valuable. He found them valuable, not for himself, but for the gospel, for the cause of the gospel. They grew exponentially and were effective and consistent in their ministry of the gospel alongside Paul. As a result of that, they traveled with Paul towards Syria. It goes on, says in verse 18, at at Centurae, or however you pronounce that, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. We don't know much about that, so I'm going to just leave that there. Vows oftentimes required, um, required um, that you grow your hair. And so at this point in time, the vow must have been completed, and so he cut his hair. Verse 19, and they came to Ephesus. Ephesus, if, you're, if you've been reading the Scriptures at all, is a, one of the more famous churches because they received a letter, a letter that was six chapters long, <clears throat> A very important letter. Obviously that went later than this. So it says in verse 19, they came, that is the three of them, came to Ephesus. And interesting statement, and he left them there. That doesn't mean he left them there and left right away. He's going to leave pretty quickly. But the idea is that they were, the determination was that those two, Priscilla and Aquila, are going to stay in Ephesus. Okay? They're going to stay. So they just traveled 150 to 200 miles by boat and they've moved from where their business had been well established. We can't miss the point. 
Their business is well established. They had a home. They were established. They were set. They were planted. They pulled it all up and they left and went with Paul and arrived in this new city, Ephesus, and they're replanted there. Why are they replanted there? Well, the text is going to tell us later on, but I'm just going to give you a little hint forward before we get there. They're planted there for a really specific purpose. And it's to minister the gospel. That's why. We're going to get back to that in just a second. You'll notice in 19, when they got there, that he left them there and he himself went into the synagogue. So he's leaving them in Ephesus general. He goes into the synagogue and does what he always does. He reasons with the Jews in the synagogue. That is, he goes to the synagogue, the, the, the Jewish synagogue, and he gets up and he begins to preach the gospel. Has an extended conversation with them. This is nothing new. He's done it every step of the way. If there's a synagogue, he goes there first. And he's preaching to them. Proclaiming the gospel to them over an extended period of time. When I mean by that extended period of time, it could have been just one day. But it was an extended period over that one day. I suspect it doesn't sound to me like it was more than a day. He's there for a day. He preaches the gospel, reasons with them for an extended period of time over that day. Verse 20, when they asked him to stay for a longer period of time, that could have been more than one day, but it doesn't sound like it, because usually if he stays for weeks, they start talking about it that way. Luke records it that way. Verse 20 again, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, this is wild. We've seen this before, right? When they ask him to stay a little longer, he says what? No. He declines to stay. I want you to notice something, though. In the synagogue where he's reasoning with them, do you sense that there is resistance in the text? You say yes, Charles. Stephanie, you say no. I would, I would, I would uh, default to Stephanie's statement. I don't see the resistance here at all. What does it say? They asked him. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Right? There's no evidence of resistance by the people, the Jews in the synagogue. Unlike most places, do you see it? Unlike most places where Paul goes to the synagogue, are, is there resistance? Almost inevitably there is. But in Ephesus, there doesn't seem to be resistance. They're, they're intrigued. They want to hear more about this. There's not an embracing of it at this point, is there? No, there's no embracing of it. But they're intrigued. They want to hear more. You would think, wouldn't you, that Paul should have said, Sounds good. Let's stay. Doesn't that make sense? In every way? But he doesn't. I don't know about you, but that's intriguing to me. He says, no, I, I'm not. I'm leaving. He declines. End of verse 20. But on taking leave of them, he says, verse 21, I will return to you if the Lord wills. And he sets sail from Ephesus. They're like, we want to hear more about this Jesus. We want to hear more about, about this Messiah you're talking about. This Messiah named Jesus that fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies 
about the coming Messiah. We desperately want to know more. That's the sense, right? And he said, sorry, I'm heading to Syria. You know what he said? Lord willing, if the Lord's willing, I'll come back. But right now, no. Now, in today's terms, we would say, what about Paul in this scenario? He's nuts. Okay, that's summing it up pretty well. <laughs> How else would we describe this in today's scenario, in today's way of thinking? He's not following God's will. He's wrong. His priorities are all messed up. He's, he's what? He's missing God given, let's throw it in there, God-given opportunities. Because certainly, if their hearts are starting to become inflamed, if, he, if they're starting to get new hearts, right? If, if, if God's starting to make them alive, sounds like a good opportunity, doesn't it? I mean, this, is, this like sounds totally counterintuitive to how we would do things today. Somebody seems to be interested in the Gospel, and we walk away. Could I just stop on that for just a second and say a couple things real quickly? We don't, certainly don't want to be flippant about what Paul's doing here. We certainly don't want to do that. But I do want to go back to something else, though. And I, I, I think it's really important that we always remember John chapter 10. And I know that Paul, this is Paul's confidence. Out of all that the Father, what? Gives Jesus, how many does he lose? He loses none. Too often, evangelism is driven by what? Guilt and fear. Isn't it? It's not driven by a, by a confidence in what God has declared. I would go back to that book that Tom was, booklet that Tom was using there. You know, again, it's a misunderstanding of who God is. In Paul's mind, one of the foundational issues for Paul is what? That all that God has ordained to be saved are going to be what? Are going to be saved. They're going to be saved. Doesn't mean Paul is lackadaisical about the gospel. Not at all. But that's a foundational issue for Paul. And so he says, if, if the Lord wills, I'll be back to Ephesus. But I'm taking leave of you and I'm leaving and heading to Syria. The pump has barely been primed and he's leaving. And then it goes on, verse 22, he, and he goes to uh, Caesarea, uh, uh, Caesarea, which was probably Caesarea by the sea. There's two different Caesareas. This is probably Caesarea by the sea where the port was. He gets out. He greets the church at Caesarea. And then it says, um, uh, he, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, back up. It says he went up and greeted, uh, and greeted the church. That's not referring to the church at Caesarea. That's referring to the church at Jerusalem. When it says he went up, that's uh, typically how you describe going to Jerusalem, going up. So he lands at Caesarea, goes up to uh, Jerusalem, greets the church, and then goes down, and the down is because he's leaving Jerusalem, going down to Antioch. And then he goes on, verse 23, after spending some time there, he departed and went 
uh, from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia and, and uh, Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So he's going and ministering to believers for a period of time afterwards. And it stops there. We're going to jump in 24 to 28 in just a little bit. I want to go back to this statement that I find very intriguing, where he should have stayed, it seems like, and he leaves. I want to remind you he's leaving, but... He's leaving the Jews that he's been dialoguing with in the temple, I'm sorry, in the synagogue, but he's also leaving who? Priscilla and Aquila. He's also leaving Priscilla and Aquila. Now, Priscilla and Aquila show up in a little bit, but I want you to notice he's leaving Priscilla and Aquila, which tells us something about those two, doesn't it? It tells us initially something about them. Now, it's an argument from silence at this point. The silence will disappear in the next section. But it tells us something about them. What does it tell us about them, implication-wise? Implication-wise, it tells us that, that Paul has a confidence that they know the Word. Does that make sense? That they, can, that they know the Scriptures and love the Scriptures and love Jesus enough to pick up the work that needs to take place. Does that make sense? That takes us to 24 and following. And so we're going to fold the previous section into the next section in just a second. Now a Jew named Apollos, this is our first introduction. Remember Paul, or Peter, I'm sorry, Luke makes introductions and then develops it later. Oftentimes, sometimes he doesn't, but usually he develops it later. Here's our first introduction of Apollos. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man and competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. There are several things in the introduction of Apollos that we need to recognize, that are appropriate to recognize. The one thing that is really interesting to recognize out of all of the things that are stated the one thing that's really important to recognize about Apollos is he's not an apostle. Correct? Do you see that there? Do you see any place where he's mentioned to be an apostle? Why do I bring this up? Because up to this point in time, your two primary players in the entire book of Acts at this point in time have been who and who? Peter and Paul. Those are the two primary players. There's others, right? John Mark, Silas, Timothy, for example. There's other minor bit players going on, doing great things, correct? But the primary players at this point in time have been Paul and Peter. And the other players that we've been introduced to in this story have been people who were taught by the apostles, correct? The rest of them have all been taught and, and, and grown through the ministry of the apostles. What's different about Apollos is he is not. That's kind of intriguing. This is like the first time. What do we find out about him? Well, he's a Jew. This is the first thing we find out. We find out his name is Apollos. We find out he's a native of Alexandria. And for some reason, he shows up in Ephesus. 
after Paul leaves. Why he came to Ephesus at this point in time, we do not know. But he came to Ephesus. We also find out that he was an eloquent man. He was able to communicate skillfully. We also found, find out he is what? Competent in the Scriptures. What does that mean? What's that? He could, he could divide it, understand it, communicate it, combining the, second, the, the previous statement, eloquent. He could communicate it. He could think through it. He understood it. Could I add to it when it says he was competent in the Scriptures? It means he was saturated with the Scriptures. It means he fellowshiped in the Scriptures. It means that the Scriptures were just like foundation to him. Does that make sense? And the implication of the text is that the Scriptures were exclusively the foundation. Isn't that the implication here? This is not one of many of his tools in his toolbox. This is it. This is it. He's competent in the Scriptures. Make sense so far? I want you to notice Verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the Spirit, he spoke according and taught accord accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew of the baptism of John. That's kind of an intriguing statement and it gives perhaps, per, I'm just using the word perhaps very purposefully, perhaps, he, it says he was taught, right? Somebody, that means somebody taught him the Scriptures. As a Jew, somebody taught him the Scriptures, but what they taught him about the Scriptures included all the Old Testament, but then it also included a little bit of what we now know as the New Testament, correct? A little bit. It, whoever it was taught him up to the point that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. That's what it tells us. He knew nothing beyond that. But we know that he knew the Old Testament and then the storyline of the New Testament up to the point that Jesus is baptized. Which implies that most likely he was probably taught by, who do you think, generically speaking? One of John the Baptist's disciples. You remember shortly after John the Baptist was, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, John the Baptist baptized Jesus. It wasn't much longer before, before John the Baptist was killed. And shortly before he, John the Baptist was killed, he was even wondering whether Jesus really was the Messiah. He sent one of his disciples to find out, to ask Jesus. So whoever it was, most likely when John the Baptist was killed, his disciples ended up being scattered. So most likely, this guy Apollos met somewhere in Alexandria one of the scattered John the Baptist disciples. John, and, and that person, not knowing the entirety of the story of Jesus, but committed to what he knew, captivated by what he knew, 
communicated the truth to Apollos. And Apollos sat and learned and drank it in and became enthralled with this Jesus. Understanding that Jesus was the Messiah but not knowing the whole story. Make sense? And what does it say about him, verse 25? We saw he's been instructed in the way of the Lord, but only up to the point of the baptism. But you'll notice it says he spoke and taught accurately the things of Jesus. That's an interesting statement. It implies several things. It implies that he was continually studying these things. He was carefully studying these things. He was wrestling with how they all fit together. He wanted to make sure, it was so important to him, that he wanted to make sure that he didn't make any mistakes. Does that make sense? In his ministry of what he knew about Jesus, he wanted to be as precise as possible. Why? Because precision on the thing that is most important is essential, isn't it? And we all know that, don't we? Things that you really don't care much about, you tend to be pretty flippant about, don't you? You tend to, you tend to play fast and easy with the, with, with, with the facts, don't you? Because it's not that important. And you're not really careful with it. But when things are really, really important to you, like really important to you, what do you do? You study them carefully, don't you? And you continue to study them carefully. And you continue to wrestle with them. And you continue to be really, really precise. Because you value it. And that's what we find with, with Apollos. He's a guy who absolutely valued the truth that he had. He was consumed with it. Captivated with it. And no little thought... No little truth was to be overlooked. No little teeny thing was irrelevant or insignificant. As a result of that, when he got up and he spoke, being fervent in spirit, you get the point there, we'll, we'll pick that up in just a second because that's one more thing I want to mention, he spoke and taught accurately about Jesus. But I want you to notice the speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus is what it says right before. It's linked dramatically to right before. He was fervent in spirit. This is really important. Here's this guy, Apollos. He's saturated with the Scriptures. The Spirit is at work in him with regard to the Scriptures and with regard to Jesus. And the result of the Spirit working in him with regard to the Scriptures, even though he doesn't have all the picture, the result is that in his Spirit, what? He's on fire. Do you get the picture? He's inflamed. He is just absolutely caught up in the Jesus of the Scriptures that he knows about. 
That's what's captivating him. That's what's driving him. That's what's causing him to be precise. He is inflamed in his spirit. He's, what is it, fervent in spirit. The spirit is clearly at work in him. Does that make sense? That's who, that's who Apollos is. So verse 26, he begins to speak boldly in the synagogue. What synagogue is that? It's in Ephesus. What synagogue is that? It's the synagogue that Paul was recently at and laid out the first salvo of the Gospel. Sometime later, we don't know how, how recently it was to that, but sometime later, this guy, at this point in time, nobody knows who he is. He shows up and he speaks accurately the things concerning Jesus. Verse 26, he begins to speak boldly in the synagogue. Why would he speak boldly? This is interesting. Why would this guy come in and speak boldly in the synagogue? Or anywhere? Because the Spirit is clearly with him. It's the evidence that the Spirit's at work in him. Isn't it? The evidence that the Spirit is working in him fervently causes his Spirit to be fervent and therefore he speaks. And that theme is consistent in the rest of the Scriptures. In fact, I would argue the speaking of the truth is one of the major evidences in the Scriptures that the Spirit is at work in someone. It doesn't mean that because, of the Spirit, that because someone's speaking that the Spirit's at work. There are false teachers, correct? There are. But it is one of the evidences. In other words, if the Spirit is really working in someone... You know what happens inevitably? They speak. And we know the Scriptures say that. The Spirit is at work in them, and if the Spirit is at work in them through the Word about Jesus, if the Spirit is at work in them and they're alive, their spirit is inevitably going to be what? It's inevitably going to become what? Fervent. Does that make sense? It inevitably, their spirit will inevitably be in agreement with the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Why? Why would that be possible? Because he's already given Apollos what? A new heart. He's already given Apollos a new heart. If he has a new heart, then his heart, where before it was of the kingdom of darkness is now the kingdom of light. Therefore, if the, the Holy Spirit of the kingdom of light is at work in him, his heart is ultimately going to be what? In agreement or opposition to the Holy Spirit? In agreement. Does that make sense? And if, his spirit is, if, if, if the Holy Spirit is at work in Apollos and he has a new heart and therefore his heart is going to be in agreement with the Holy Spirit, we have to agree, don't we, that the Holy Spirit is fervent in His work? If you're not sure about that, great tool <laughs> to help you think through the issues of the Holy Spirit. The Scriptures will tell us very clearly that He's not flippant about His work in believers. We know that's the case. The testimony of the Scriptures is complete. The Holy Spirit is not flippant 
about the, His work in, in believers. I would submit to you that the Holy Spirit is also not impotent and flippant about His work in unbelievers. You realize that? Because what does God do? In, the Scriptures tell us in believers, He does what to their hearts? He softens their hearts. In unbelievers, what does He do? He hard, no, in unbelievers, He sometimes regenerates, but in those He doesn't regenerate, He what? He hardens their hearts. Romans 9 makes that really, really clear. He's always either softening or hardening. Softening or hardening. Softening. Could I ask you a question? Is there any evidence in the Scriptures anywhere that He's impotent in that process? It's always well done and completely done. Does that make sense? Exactly. And that was pretty effective. When He hardened Pharaoh's heart, it was really, really effective. When He softened a guy who was more evil than Pharaoh, and more hardened probably even than Pharaoh, when he softened Saul's heart, was it effective? Was it? Absolutely it was. <laughs> Whoa. And you see that every step of the way, don't you? He's not impotent. He's very effective. So it only makes sense if Apollos is in the kingdom of light and he has a new heart, the Spirit at work in him would not be hardening him, of course. He would be continuing to soften him. And if he's continuing to soften him, would you not expect that the new heart that God gave, God the Holy Spirit gave Apollos, you would expect that there would be an agreement with the two, wouldn't you? Does that make sense? You'd expect there's an agreement with the two. And if there's an agreement with the two and the Spirit is fervently after His work, and we know He is, if we would expect that He's fervent after His work, you'd expect then, therefore, that Apollos' heart would also be what? Fervent! It would be incoherent for the Spirit to be fervently at work and Apollos' heart not to be. That's why in the Scripture I've quoted so many times in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Is God's work, does it tend to fail? Does it ever fail? No. God's work never fails. And if so if God is at work in a believer both to will and to work for His good pleasure, and if He's fervently at work, would you not expect that those who He's at work in will work out their salvation with fear and trembling? Would that not make sense? Which is just another way of saying that the fervency of the Spirit is transferred to the fervency of the believer's heart. Right? I mean, this is really important stuff. Because today, too often, Christians don't connect that. Too often, we, we would say, yeah, the Spirit's at work, but. But that's not, that but is not there in the Scriptures. Do we sin? Yes, of course we do. But even there is the Spirit at work fervently in the believer's life. Yes, and what's the ramifications of that? If we're truly believers, then what's the ramification of the one who has committed sin that the Spirit is fervently at work in? 
they will, could I use the word? I think so. They will fervently repent. Right? That's what will happen. So I, we, I think the fervency issue is there very strongly. So we find in Apollos that he is fervent in spirit, which means the spirit is at work in him. The ramification of all this is that he's steeped in the scriptures, and therefore he is, and that's by the spirit as well, fervently at work in him. So the ramifications are is that he is what? Carefully and accurately, and need we say, fervently preaching the scriptures. Does that make sense? That's why it says in verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And while he's preaching boldly in the synagogue, we find the storyline, <clears throat> Priscilla and Aquila hear him there. And when they listen to him, they hear his bold proclaiming, his fervency. They recognize something. But they recognize he has only part of the picture. Correct? He's got, only got part of the story. He doesn't have the whole story. He's got the story up to Jesus' baptism. But they don't know, he doesn't know about his teaching. He doesn't know about his arrest. He doesn't know about his conviction. He doesn't know about his crucifixion. He doesn't know about his resurrection. And he doesn't know about his ascension. And he doesn't know about his promised return. And many other things in there. Doesn't seem like he knows. He, he doesn't even know that. Yeah, he doesn't even know about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2. What? But he has it. <laughs> exactly right. But he doesn't know these things yet. That's a good point, Tom. He doesn't know this yet. So what does Priscilla and Aquila do? This is the first glimpse we have of Priscilla and Aquila's ministry. Up to this point in time, it's been presumed, correct? It's just been presumed, an argument from silence. But, then, but when Priscilla and Aquila hear, heard him, they took him aside and did what? They taught him. They explained to him the way of God more accurately. Interesting, the word choice. He was teaching accurately, and then they proclaimed it to him more accurately which means they added to the accuracy with more data. They didn't correct what he said. They just said, you're right. You're right, but. What's that, Jim? Yeah, you're right up to this point, but here's more that you need to understand. Correct? Yeah. Paul Harvey. Here's the rest of the story. Exactly. Verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that, Jesus, that the Christ was Jesus. It's interesting. You know what that means? It means when Priscilla and Aquila taught him the rest of the story, you know what happened? He believed it. The Spirit continued to work fervently in him and he embraced it. The rest of the story. 
And when he embraced the rest of the story, what happened with his ministry? The fervency went through the roof, didn't it? That's clearly the case, because now he's going on his own little missionary journey. Isn't that what he's doing? Because notice again what it says. Sometime after he grappled with the truth and came to an understanding of the complete truth as revealed by the Spirit through the Scriptures, it says, verse 27, the implication is once he got it, immediately he wanted to do what? He wanted to go minister. What did you say, Tom? He wanted to run with it. He wanted to go minister. The dude was fired up before. Now he's through the roof. He wants to go to Kai. And the other believers in Ephesus did what? They encouraged him. They didn't put down the idea. They encouraged him to go. And they even wrote a letter to the disciples in Achaia to welcome him. The implication being, he will minister to you. So it says in, at, uh, in verse 27, he, so he goes over there and when he arrives, two things. Number one, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So those who were in Achaia who were believers, they were built up dramatically in the faith. Does that make sense? The effect of his ministry matured them dramatically. Number two, verse 28, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures, we've seen that phrase before, by or through the Scriptures, we've seen that over and over and over again, right? By or through the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. The same exact ministry that Paul has had. Correct? To the Jews? Declaring to them that Christ was Jesus. Now, we don't really have any, any uh, storyline here about the ramifications of that at this point. But it's, it's interesting. What do we find? And this is the point of this text. And I find this, this point is so important. It is really easy. And there's many points we could drag out of this text. This is the one I want to point out today. It is very easy to look at Acts 1 through 18, 17 and say, yeah, Paul and, and Peter had a great ministry, didn't they? The apostles, these two apostles had a phenomenal ministry. My goodness, suffering ministry too, but they had a great ministry. And then the people that accompanied Paul and Peter, they had a great ministry as well, didn't they? Kind of on the coattails of Paul and Peter, didn't they? Yeah. Man, that was pretty amazing. But that's them. I'm sorry? There's no evidence at all that Paul met Paul at this point in time. Yes, same exact one. They meet later, but at this point, nothing. Here is average guy. No-name guy, except for a name. What I mean by no-name is we know nothing about him except for these little things. We don't know much at all, do we? Just a few odds and ends. 
at best we could say, average guy that could speak well. <laughs> right? And maybe that speaking well is just because he's so thoroughly saturated with scrip scriptures that he can speak the scriptures, and that's all the spirit. It's not just an innate ability to speak well. What's that? Yeah, exactly. We don't know, according to this text, whether the eloquent speaking is because of the Spirit, or if it, obviously it is, all things are from the Spirit, but, or if it's just something innate, he's really a, a skillful orator. But what's interesting, he's an average guy as far as we know. We could add to it, not only is he an average guy, but Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila, are average guy, average girl, tent makers, aren't they? They're no-namers. They're nobodies. They're just workers. That's all they are. That's it. And what happens? The Holy Spirit uses tent makers and who knows who. Apollos. Doesn't he? Doesn't seem like when Paul leaves, doesn't seem like anyone got saved in Paul's short little ministry in Ephesus at that point, right? All it says is they want him to stick around and tell him more about it. And he says no. So the church in Ephesus, you could argue, was planted by Paul just because he started with the gospel. What's that? Because he showed up and took a little time to defend. But in reality, the church in Ephesus, obviously planted by the Holy Spirit, but the, tool he, the tools he used was who? Aquila and Priscilla and then Apollos. Average people. Blips on a radar screen. That's all they were. No, no, Timothy is elsewhere. Interestingly enough, what we have is Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos, and the church in Ephesus grows and grows and grows and grows. Paul comes back later and grows. And you know what's really interesting about this? If you read the book of Ephesians and read the rest of the epistles that Paul wrote, you realize, don't you, that the Ephesian church, in reading the book of, Ephesus, uh, of Ephesians, is probably just about doing better than just about any other one of the churches that received a letter from Paul. They're going gangbusters. He writes to them, reminds them of Jesus. It reminds them of their great salvation, doesn't he? And importantly so, but there's almost nothing in Ephesians that is like, dudes, what's wrong with you? Where did he spend a whole boatload of time? What church did he spend a whole, lot of boatload, a whole boatload of time in, in the book of Acts? Corinthian, the Corinth. He spent a boatload of time in Corinth, didn't he? <coughs> And how is the Corinthian church doing once, once Paul starts writing letters to them? 
Exactly. It's a mess. And, and it's so much of a mess that as he corrects their errors, now they do respond to the correction of errors. They do. He writes 1 Corinthians. They respond <clears throat> in repentance. And then it gets worse. 2 Corinthians, it gets worse. Because in 1 Corinthians, they were still respecting Paul. But they're disobeying, they're living a disobedient lives. In 2 Corinthians, they're accusing Paul of being a thief and being a, a not a true apostle. Does that sound like getting better or getting worse? That's why at the end of 2 Corinthians, he said, you better examine yourself to see if you're of the faith. Why? Because you're not living like, like it. But here is, is a church or a town where Paul is there for a moment and gone, and average people... Preach the gospel. And people are transformed and the church grows in Christ dramatically. Dramatically. Why do we mention that? I would argue out of the many things we could see in this text, one of the things that is striking to me, I think it's absolutely striking, we must sit up and take notice. What does Paul use? What does God, I'm sorry, what does the Holy Spirit use? He uses people, whether they are Paul and Peter, or whether they're Timothy, Silas, or those type of people, or whether they're Priscilla and Aquila or Apollos. You know what he uses? He uses people who are alive in Christ. He uses people who he's fervently at work in. People who have been given a new heart. That's the evidence of this text. He's using people who he's bearing witness with that they are the children of God. He's at work in people who are average people, maybe even below average people. Aquila and Priscilla are just tent makers. Kind of like a factory worker. No offense to factory workers. But when he inflames their hearts, everything changes. When he's inflamed, and he is always inflamed, the spirit, and he makes someone alive and inflames their heart, everything changes. And notice the order of the change. The first order of change is not preaching, is it? Is it? The fervency first shows it up in what? A fervency to know the Word of God. The first evidence in the storyline of Apollos is a fervency to know the Scriptures. To intimately know the Scriptures. To intimately be accurate and faithful in your thinking to the Scriptures. You see that? It's really clear. 
But then when they're fervent, when Apollos by the Spirit, because the Spirit is fervently working in him and his heart is in agreement with the Spirit, as he is fervently studying the Scriptures and learning and knowing the Scriptures, he evidently can't, and this is really important, he can't help it. Does that make sense? He can't help it. The evidence that the Spirit is at work in him causes him to love and long for the truth. And in longing, longing and learning of the truth, the inevitable thing happens. The truth spills out. Doesn't it? The truth spills out. I know you're drinking it right now, but <clears throat> I don't know, how, what is it, 32 ounces? 40 ounces. This is 40 ounces. What's going to happen if I try to put two gallons in here? Is there any way to stop that, Tom, from overflowing? No, because water doesn't compress. <laughs> but if, if, if you're going to put two gallons in, if you're going to pour two gallons through the opening, you can't compress water because water is uncompressible. It cannot be compressed at all. So if I'm going to try to put two gallons in, it's inevitable. If this is a 40-ounce thing, how much of that two, ounce, two gallons is going to fit in here? 40 ounces. What's going to happen to the rest of it? It's going to be all over the floor, isn't it? It's going to be on the counter. It's going to be on the floor. It's going to be in your shoes. It's going to be everywhere, isn't it? Is that inevitable? Yes. Can I just submit to you? I said water is uncompressible. Because it is. Could I submit to you the truth is uncompressible as well? It is. It's uncompressible. And there's more truth than you can hold. You cannot be merely a repository of truth. You can't. Because if the Spirit is at work in us, the truth is coming. Because the Spirit can't be at work in us without truth. Correct? The truth must be there for the Spirit to work. And he doesn't look at Steve and say, well, Steve can hold 40 ounces, so I'm only going to give him 40 ounces. No, he looks at me and says, Steve can only afford, hold 40 ounces, so I'm going to give him a trillion gallons. Do you realize that? Now, why do I say that? Now, is there any biblical evidence for that? Yes. I've quoted it so many times. Jesus said very clearly, drink from me and keep drinking from me the fountain of living water, and what will happen? Out of you will what? Will flow rivers, plural. You're drinking from a spring, right? As it says, the spring of living water. You're drinking from a spring, and out of you will flow what? Rivers, plural, of living water. Not trickles, right? Not trickles. Not wadis, deceptive streams. He says, out of you, and it's not, it's not a command to make them flow, it's a promise, this will happen. 
Out of you will flow, what? Rivers. Now, just to help you out, think of it this way. We'll just pretend, <clears throat> if we may, we'll pretend, if you don't mind me taking it again, that this is a, a spring of living water. And when you leave, every one of you, when you leave, you're going to drive across the Schuylkill. And that's just one river. You get the picture? Does that make sense? Now, is that evidence in this text? Yeah, it is. Because Apollos is drinking from the spring of living water, isn't he? And he's continuing to drink from the spring of living water, isn't he? And what's happening? Is Ephesus being impacted by, by the river? Oh, and is there another river in Achaia coming out of Apollos? Yeah. Pretty clear, isn't it? Now you could argue that Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila, it looks like they didn't leave at this point in time anyway, didn't leave Ephesus. But I suspect they were ministering all over the place. Rivers of living water. Now those rivers, that living water may re be rejected everywhere, right? They could be ignored, mocked, ridiculed, rejected everywhere. But do you, do you get the sense that for Aquila and Priscilla that there are rivers of living water flowing out of them? Does that make sense? It's there, isn't it? It's really evident. We know from Paul it was. We know from Peter it was. We know from John it was. We know from, from Timothy and Titus and <clears throat> from Silas, from John Mark later on, and from numerous others. Correct? You see it, don't you? Can I just ask you a quick question? Do you, can you find any place in the New Testament where the Spirit is fervently working at somebody, in somebody and there's no rivers flowing? Now let me shift gears. In Christianity today, I'm going to talk about the magazine, I'm talking about Christianity in this day and age. Do you find a lot of people that would claim that the Spirit's at work in them, but there doesn't even see, seem to be a trickle? Or maybe contaminated? Kind of interesting. Do you see the contrast? And it, it, it has to cause us to stop and think, wait a second, what's changed? Right? What's changed? Has the Spirit suddenly become impotent? Well, is there any evidence in the, in the Scriptures that the Spirit ever becomes impotent? What's the answer? No! So, I wonder what's changed. Perhaps it's the gospel, the, pre the presentation of the gospel has changed. The, or maybe it's the presentation of the gospel has changed in that we've created truncated gospels that aren't the gospel at all because the scriptures talk about a good news that's not good news. Or maybe we've absolutely corrupted all of the statements of the scriptures or many of the statements of the scriptures which go back to corrupting the gospel. What am I trying to say? The only answer I can come up with, friends, is that if we know the spirit doesn't change and he doesn't, the only 
conclusion we can come to is there probably is a whole lot that are saying, Lord, Lord, but he says, I don't know you. Because the evidence in the text, the evidence in this text, and I would argue throughout the New Testament, the argument in the text is that what you have is you have the movement of the Spirit and then you have the ramifications of the movement of the Spirit. Today we have supposedly the movement, movement of the Spirit and then the, no evidence of movement of the Spirit. As if somehow, or little movement, evidence of movement of the Spirit, as if somehow that's acceptable. And I think that would cause us a significant pause. It ought to cause us to back the horses up and say, wait a second, what did we miss? What did we miss? And maybe we need to walk back down the trail and go back and say, what did we miss? And where did we miss it? And to cry out to God and say, God, open our eyes to see. Because the thing that's clear in the Scriptures is when the Spirit moves, people are transformed. Still sinners, but they're transformed. And they repent loudly. And they repent frequently. And the thing that oozes out of them is rivers of living water. All the time. Continually. The last I want to say is that Jesus did not say, and out of you will flow occasionally springs of living, or rivers of living water. He didn't say that. He didn't say, and out of you will once in a great while flow, flow rivers of living water. He said, it'll flow. It'll flow. It's a promise, not a command. It's a promise. It will flow because God's word does not return to him void. And so I would ask us to cry out to God and say, God, please help me to see. To see the truth by your spirit. And I think we ought to pray and ask God to fervently work in our hearts. To fervently inflame us. To fervently open our eyes to see. And to fervently bring about the promised results. I think it's perfectly appropriate and we should be praying, especially if we look and see this doesn't sound like me at all. I think it's very appropriate to pray that God would cause living rivers of living water to flow from us, to change our hearts so that, so that we would be so overwhelmed with the truth that the truth would just explode from us for his glory. Amen? Because that's how God says he glorifies himself. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <coughs> it seems that too often Christianity has been truncated. The expectation of rivers of living water don't seem to exist much. The evidence doesn't exist much, but we know you haven't changed. And if you haven't changed, then the only thing left is the condition of our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us. Not to be results-minded, <laughs> because the results belong to you.
but that you'll inflame our hearts with love for you and love for your word, a longing for Jesus. Lord, I pray that you will help us and change us so that we will be people who love more than anything else drinking from the fountain of living water. Help us to know about that food that almost nobody knows about and to be satisfied with the food you offer. We ask you to glorify yourself in us. Inflame our hearts with your love. In your name I pray. Amen.